Hello, I'd like to welcome you to my 2020 blended show, including elements of prose, poetry, and purpose, and focus on. As the COVID-19 crisis engulfs our world, I can think of no better way to utilize the power of radio than to bring compelling, inspirational, and informative content to your radio dial every Tuesday here on Voice of Ashon, 101.9 FM, KVSH. Each interview going forward will relate directly to our capacity as individuals and as society to overcome and learn from this moment in time. There is no going back to how things used to be, nor do I believe we would want to do so. Remember that before COVID-19, the world was watching in horror as Australian wildlife and forests were decimated by apocalyptic firestorms. A young teenager was traveling the world begging the adults of the planet to take catastrophic climate collapse seriously. And despite the lessons supposedly learned from the 2008 housing crisis, we have seen banks that were too big to fail back then becoming even bigger, while the economic divide between the people and the oligarchy is widening without an end in sight. So go back, we must not. The question we face today is how do we go forward together? And today, to help us come up with some answers to that question, I am bringing James Martin Nelson to the show to discuss his newly released book, Stealing Home, How Artificial Intelligence is Hijacking the American Dream. James, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, good morning, Mark, and thank you for inviting me to your program. Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to it. This is such a fascinating book, and you cover so many aspects of this singular topic. Right off the bat, why don't you ground people a bit in who you are, where you're coming from? Well, thank you, March. Um, Well, I was actually raised in rural America on a very small family farm, uh, 13 miles north of the southern border in Arizona. I received my degree in economics and business from BYU, and have been in banking, uh, commercial banking, for nearly 40 years. I've worked as a federal banking regulator and a chief credit officer of a community bank. And most recently, for the last decade, I've worked as a broker where I owned my own commercial loan brokerage business, where I financed many of these large multifamily apartment buildings, and as well as mobile home parks. You have a personal relationship (laughs) with how homelessness can affect people. I do, thank you. Um, It's not something I talk about a lot. Uh, You know, a lot of us uh, carry our emotions rather uh, deep inside. I was actually born in uh, Orange County, California. And when I was about five, my grandmother called my dad and let him know that my granddad had gotten too old to handle the farm by himself. Oh, yeah. And she was wanting him to come back to help. So we left Anaheim and went to this small family farm, as I said, 13 miles from the southern border in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. Uh, I, as it turned out, I absolutely loved the farm. It was a small dairy farm, and I loved it. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it, was, it turned out that, that it was in my blood. But like a lot of family farms then, as in today, uh, my dad had to work on the side to provide you know, money to help make the farm payments, the loan payments, mm-hmm. and to keep our living uh, going because the farming was not providing a lot of money. But the problem happened when I was about 10. 
we got pulled out of classes uh, and had to go to the principal's office. And I was very bashful, so I was scared. Uh, when I got there, uh, my mom and an aunt was there, and, and there were a couple of kids, I remember, in the background who were crying and having a rough time. And when we got to the office, uh, my aunt informed me that my dad had been in a serious mining accident uh, just a few miles from where our farm was, uh, was Bisbee, Arizona, right. uh, a copper mine that had been in business for well over 100 years. Mm-hmm. And my dad was seriously injured to the point where he, was, he couldn't work for nearly a year, broke his uh, pelvis, his legs, and, and, and back. And we needed, we relied on that money to make the farm payments. And with that money gone, uh, in those days, we didn't have insurance. It, it was just on our own. So when I was about 12, we lost our home and farm to, to foreclosure. Mm-hmm. That's we a not- huge, huge thing for a child to lose a home. We connect so deeply, especially when it's a landed home and there's the animals you know, you've told me you helped raise the chickens every year and the baby chicks and everything. So so when you describe yourself as having spent about 40 years in the world of banking, in yeah. a way it's like you've been on that side of things. You've, you've seen the business of banking and how that relates to homes, the home that all of us go home to every night. And yet you also have a personal experience, which I believe is sort of driving the last few years you've spent trying to figure out exactly what's wrong with the multifamily rental market and housing market in this country. So I wanted to make sure the audience really understood that you are seeing this from both sides. You know, the, the, sad, the sad part about homelessness is that for some reason, we tend to want to blame the victims. Mm-hmm. It's their own moral failing. It, it's, it's something they must have done. Mm-hmm. And yet, in our case, as in most cases, you know, it just came down to we couldn't cover the hospital bill. Mm-hmm. We, we couldn't cover the cost because we lost our source of, of income. Right. And I believe that is a very much a real scenario today. Well, in fact, yes. that, that did lead me to try to find out what has been causing these skyrocketing rental rates and what mm-hmm. has been causing the side effects of skyrocketing and ballooning homelessness as well. Well, isn't it um, true, I think, something because, for example, we do not have um, medical care provided for all of our citizens through our collective efforts, i.e. the government and our taxes, something like, um, what is it, 67% of people who file bankruptcy, which oftentimes does precipitate the loss of a home, that that is actually related to medical bills in so many cases. That is absolutely correct. So let's talk about this book because this book is an empowering tool in the hands of everyone who picks it up, takes the time to read it, and is um, feeling perhaps like my family is feeling, that there there is the number one goal in my life right now, May 2020, 
is that my family will not lose our home. That has become the preeminent goal of my entire family. My adult children who are 18 and 21 know that if we face um, traumatic hardship going forward, we will call upon them to work full time and help us pay um, off the last four and a half years of our mortgage. There are many people, many, many people who are on the edge in a risky, vulnerable position already. And now we have the COVID crisis. Your book, I think, and this interview can help people start to understand that the precariousness of life for renters and homeowners in America is by design. It is there for the profit of a few, and it is not the result of natural forces such as purely supply and demand. These are important messages. As you say, the victims should not be blamed because they are actually in a system that has been created on purpose to fleece them. And that's very true. Early on in my study, I came across an old study from, I think it was 1933, after the economic crash or the, the Great Depression mm-hmm. of 1929, when the right. financial markets all crashed. Of course, Roosevelt launched the New Deal. And, and part of the New Deal was the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which today has become HUD. And what I found is an original study uh, that had happened in Ohio, and it was incorporated into our early housing market as they put this program together. Mm-hmm. And they came to the determination that we should not spend more than 20% of our budgeted income on housing. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first things that really caught my attention because today, even my children are spending over 50% of their income on housing. Right. It's become the norm. And, right. and we're starting to accept it. Mm-hmm. And, and that is part of the, one of the driving reasons that I, I went in and did my deep dive in my two years of sabbatical to understand what was causing it. How did we get from 20% of our budget to housing to 50 and in many cases over 70% of our income to housing? Well, to be honest, what comes to mind for me is that that is basically sort of the um, definition of a sharecropper, a person who may not be technically a slave, but so much of the income they earn goes to just covering the basic cost of their their home that they have nothing left over with which to move themselves forward or personally enrich their life or even enjoy their life. Honestly, absolutely. That, that, that's absolutely true. And a lot of times we come up with the theory that it's got to be, it's the medical. You know, we just can't afford, you know, health insurance. We, we can't afford to eat good food. But what my study revealed, that it all starts with our housing. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to provide safe and secure housing is usually the top of everybody's list. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can't provide your housing or if you're paying 50 to 70 percent mm-hmm. of your income to housing, it simply doesn't leave you any money right. for good food. It doesn't leave you good money to be able to pay health insurance. And it mm-hmm. certainly doesn't leave you any money to improve yourself, 
through educational opportunities. Right. You can't send your kids to college if you literally can't save a penny. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That's so, correct. So let's go back up now a little bit here because you and I have been talking for about a month and a half. And um, yes. I've learned a lot during that time. I'm college educated. I got really good grades when I was in college and high school. I own a home. I would have imagined I would have understood some of these things. And I was clueless. I didn't even know what HUD was. For those of you who already know out there, my apologies. But for the folks who don't know, we're going to go ahead and do a quick little five-minute historical update and understanding of what HUD is. So tell us how it started. Tell us what its purpose was. Tell us what moment it started to be corrupted away from its purpose. Can you do all that in about five minutes? I'm going to give it my best try. All right, James, go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start at the beginning. What is HUD? Well, HUD stands for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Now, many of you may have heard of HUD in the news recently. As the pandemic began, uh, they issued a blanket forbearance on evictions. Now, you may ask yourselves, who gave HUD that authority, and what role do they play in our housing markets today? Mm -hmm. And to best answer this, I need to take you back into time when our government played no role in our housing markets. Right. And that takes us back to 1929. Before this time, the government played absolutely no role in our markets. Cities managed housing. And you would see um, cities as being a form of government, but it sounds like it was more like the people who, the property developers, people who wanted to build housing and profit off of that industry, basically just sort of got the thumbs up from the city and the city would tax them. Was it that simple? It was that simple. It basically looks like today. <laughs> you had this alliance of developers and banks, and there was no regulation. In fact, before 1929, the typical... Uh, financing terms on a house, is you'd have to put up to 50% down. And then you could only expect an amortization of 10 or 15 years. And it gets worse. You had balloon payments every three to five years. Now, what a balloon payment means is that when the loan matures, you either have to pay it off or you got to go through and pay all the fees and charges again to get that refinanced. Right. Now, the financial crashes of, of 1929 changed all of this. The people no longer had the ability to refinance those balloon payments. Those forces you were just talking about are why my impression of the cities, as they grew, as people left the rural environment where, you know, maybe there was less regulation, a lot of people could build themselves a shack and no one really cared if it wasn't a great dwelling, but, you know, so, so housing in a way was sort of cheap in the rural environment. But when people went into the cities and we saw the cities bulging, my impression is that you had the wealth class who would actually build homes, own homes, but mostly otherwise you had tenement buildings and stuff. And so the people who came into the cities, they couldn't actually own anything. They just automatically became renters. Is that sort of what, what developed in, in that period of time? It, it is. In fact, the highest home ownership got before 1929 uh, was about 40%. Conversely, today, we're at about 65% of home ownership in the country. Okay. So then you had the big crash and said, ooh, things need to be done better. Yes. You know, as I mentioned, about half of all homeowners who had mortgages were in foreclosure. And not just delinquent, mm -hmm. but delinquent by as much as 18 months was the average. 
and there were no banks left to refinance those balloon payments. Mm -hmm. And when Roosevelt took office, he found that nearly a million American families were in the final stages of being evicted from their homes. And that's when he launched the New Deal. And part of the New Deal, as I mentioned earlier, was a homeowner's loan corporation, which is the predecessor to HUD. Okay. Now, the Homeowners Loan Corporation is later solidified into the Housing Acts of 1949, which is the same program we use today. And we can't go into a lot of detail specifically on that, but what you're essentially saying is that they found a way to actually get people back into their homes, and that was sort of what happened and what created these new regulations that became HUD. Is that a good way to paraphrase it? It is. In fact, this was the first time in our history that the federal government began taking an active role in our housing markets. In fact, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was revolutionary in its design, Mm -hmm. and it became an incredible benefit to the American people. The, The Housing Act is best known for its directive that every American deserves a decent home and a safe living environment. And to make this happen, the Act grants Congress the authority to intervene into our markets by providing loan guarantees, financing, or whatever resources were needed to ensure every American has access to that decent home. Which is what's happening right now as Congress is taking action in order to keep people in their homes during COVID-19, correct? That is correct. So that was where they got the power to do that was was back in, what what was that, the 40s? The Housing Act of 1949. 49, okay. I think my dad was born in 49. I would assume everyone also in this country is well aware that after World War II, we had this huge investment in building up suburbs and stuff, creating housing for all of the men coming back from the war, all the new families, the baby boomers that were being born. And so is that another example of how we collectively as a society focused on offer? Because everyone of that generation talks about, oh, I bought my house for only $22,000. And, you know, everyone has this memory of how it was actually very reasonable and and fairly easy to become a homeowner. Whereas right now, if you want to be a homeowner and you're a 19-year-old and you look around, you're like, when am I ever going to own a home? Like right now, it does not feel at all possible. Right, right. You know, that shortage also happened in 1968, Mm -hmm. and Congress made the provision, and they built over 26 million affordable housing units. The Housing Act of 49 worked beautifully for decades. Mm -hmm. But today, as you mentioned, nearly half of Americans can no longer afford that decent home. And in fact, today, HUD guarantees over $7 trillion in housing debt, the most in our history. And yet we have an affordable housing shortage of over 7 million units. Is that via Fannie Mae and Fannie Mac? Yes, that's part of the process. Yes, and Fannie Mae. (laughs) So that's the guarantee. Yes. What what the government does and basically how it works is if you walk into your local bank Mm -hmm. and borrow money to buy a home, in order for the program to work, the Housing Act of 49 set up what we call a secondary housing market. Mm-hmm. And how that works is that let's say you walked into a, your bank and you borrowed a half million dollars to buy a home. After a short period of time, that bank wouldn't have been able to lend any more money because it wouldn't have any available. Right. It had invested all their money into these homes. 
how it works is the secondary market, which is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mm-hmm. walks in and buys a loan on these homes and gives the money back to the bank. And then the right. bank can turn around and, and, and finance more homes. Jenny May offers the investor uh, bonds that mm-hmm. back these loans that Fannie and Freddie Mac hold. They, this is exactly what my book explores. Mm-hmm. You know, our housing markets were actually one of the true benefits that made America great. But today, all that has changed. Okay, so these are the nuts and bolts. And as we all know, over the last four decades, we've seen yeah, a real... about 1980. Yeah, we've seen a real shift away from the systems that created that middle-class surge. So let's go ahead and talk about that so people understand what it is that we're losing, like literally right now, I believe there's a, a, a case being heard by the Supreme Court, or it was a week ago. Let's talk a little bit about what protections we might be losing so people understand right now in this moment, what is at risk and what we don't want to lose and don't want to give up. Tell us about that. Sure. I think what you're talking about is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or yes. the acronym, the CFPB. Yes. Uh, yes, that was created after the 2008 financial crash, and it was part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act and the Consumer Protection Act of 2010. Mm-hmm. And so what Congress did was created the CFPB to oversee consumer financial protection. Its purpose is to enforce laws that outlaw discrimination and other unfair treatment in consumer finance and mm-hmm. restrict unfair deceptive, or abusive practices. Mm-hmm. In other words, now, the watchdog for the financial industry. Correct. Got it. Now, the, the economic collapse of 2008 exposed a real lack of a centralized agency that didn't exist to protect the financial consumers. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't the first time that America realized that a central authority was needed to protect the citizens. After the 9-11 attacks, showed the U.S. needed a centralized agency to focus solely on domestic protection. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the Department of Homeland Security was created to do just that. Likewise, the CFPB strives to service consumers by combining authority that was once held by a half a dozen different entities. So what you're saying is that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was supposed to be consolidated to prevent that type of a weakness in the system, so the rules would truly be applied. That is correct, and, and to provide you know safety and soundness for our institutions as well. Okay. Uh, so that we have an entity that can keep the housing markets going forward, mm-hmm. even for our children and grandchildren. Right. For most people, our homes are our biggest investment. Mm-hmm. And it's important that people need to understand what obligations they have and how their payments are broken down. And the CFPB made all this possible. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, the CFPB made significant improvements in our lives. Mm-hmm. Markedly, they recovered more than $13 billion in corporate America's ill-gotten gains. Mm-hmm. They provided 35 million consumers received stronger safeguards against reckless mortgage practices that caused that 2008 crash. Mm -hmm. And they gave consumers a voice by promptly responding to their complaints, leading Mm -hmm. to problems getting fixed for vast numbers of individuals. Now, 
of course, when they provided these protections to the consumers, it came at the expense of massive profits mm-hmm. to corporate America and especially the financial institutions. Right. And so unsurprisingly, the CFPB has a lot of enemies out there. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, President Trump has been one of the biggest opponents of the CFPB. Mm-hmm. His appointments as director have led to a stark decline in effectiveness. In fact, enforcement in 2018 were down 80% from the previous administration in 2015. Okay. And even worse today, the CFPB stands before the U.S. Supreme Court the Trump administration has asked that it be ruled unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. The administration argues that the CFPB takes too much authority away from the president. And, oh, that's you know, fascinating. This, yeah. In fact, it's a really frustrating argument, and actually it's a bit scary for people in the banking world because financial institutions in the U.S. have historically been nonpartisan. Right. And a good example of this is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has the same basic organization structure as the CFPB. So if the Supreme Court rules it unconstitutional, it would take very little action for the next president to go in and change the Federal Reserve, which would, of course, destroy our entire monetary system. Seems like mission creep. It's like, what, is the president supposed to be um, responsible for, like, everything? I mean, actually, the whole point of checks and balances is that there are limits to what the president is supposed to be responsible for because he's only one person in one administration, and Congress has other responsibilities than the Supreme Court. I mean, imagine if you were to sue the Supreme Court and say that the Supreme Court is inherently limiting the power of the presidency by um, not allowing the president to determine, you know, to vote as a member of the Supreme Court. I mean, that's the whole point, actually, of our government, is to limit power. That, that is absolutely correct. The, the president has responsibilities to ensure all government agencies are working as they were intended to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the president has the ability to remove the director for a cause. Mm-hmm. But this president wants to be able to remove a person just because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a big difference in that it doesn't seem surprising to me that if donald trump jr has an opportunity to get into the white house he's going to use the powers available to him to try to further dismantle controls over what is essentially his family business does that line up at all it it does in fact what, what i found is that currently those investors in the real estate market are behind much of what is causing our housing shortages today. Mm-hmm. And it's at the behest of greed and wealth. Right. Because I, I don't, when I look at Donald Trump Jr., the current sitting president, I don't see a person who's in control of everything. I see a representative of a larger collaboration of other individuals who we don't see, who are behind the scenes. So to me, it feels like if you're going after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, then you're going after them because they are inhibiting your ability to profit. Correct. Uh, They used to call it unfettered access to profits, Mm -hmm. which simply put means do away with with regulations that protect consumers Mm -hmm. because that inhibits their ability to make these massive profits. So by removing the regulators, there's no one left 
to protect the consumers, but it allows them to make these massive profits at our expense. Well, it's a form of um, monopolization, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, we're all familiar with this. We've seen this happen with Bell Labs. It happened with Microsoft. You know, this happens, and then usually the government steps in and says, ah, it's a little bit unfair, you know. So that's what we're looking at here is sort of um, sounds like a battle between the property owners and all of the humans that need to either buy or rent those properties, which I think allows us to transition over to the role of artificial intelligence. And let's see, how do we want to dive into that big, big pond? Well, what's causing the skyrocketing rental rate? There you go. I like that. Okay. So if I understand correctly, artificial intelligence is being used as a new technology that is unfettered because we don't really have regulations around it because it's so new to the scene. And it's being used to generate skyrocketing profits at the same time that it is creating skyrocketing cost of living for renters and homeowners. How about you tell us a little bit about that? As I was doing my my economic studies, trying to ascertain what was behind those skyrocketing rental rates, I finally came to the realization that the culprit disrupting the housing markets was artificial intelligence. And honestly, I nearly stopped my research. Who am I to try to explain this new, powerful technology? Mm -hmm. Therefore, I, I took time that I needed to study and educate myself on how this technology worked and how it was being implemented and used in our housing markets. And here's what I learned. Artificial intelligence is part of the computer science world that is concerned with building smart machines. Mm -hmm. Now, these smart machines are capable of performing tasks that used to be reserved for human intelligence. So historically, our computer software programs were hard-coded by people. With AI... In theory, over time, AI will no longer accept commands from its human operators. Instead, it will learn from itself. So the AI, like people, are trained and not programmed. And I found that technology is a game changer. It has changed and disrupted each and every industry it has entered. For example, Netflix and Amazon. Mm-hmm. And today, property managers are implementing this AI technology at a very rapid pace throughout the entire housing market. Now, I found there is a big downside to the AI technology, and that is it requires massive amounts of data in order to be effective. Mm-hmm. So what the property managers are doing to gather that massive data is they are gathering this not only from their tenants. And let me tell you, what they have on us would shock you. But they're also amassing this data on the properties they manage. Mm -hmm. Now, the managers have formed an alliance and are using a shared operating platform to pool all of this data. And they are using this huge collection of data to fix rental prices and artificially push up the rental prices, which is causing the skyrocketing rental rates. Okay, so... Essentially... 
Yep. They have formed a cartel, and they are price-fixing. Right. And the American people are facing the higher and higher rental rates because of it. Right. If you were to ask the average person sitting in a cafe here on my island or in anywhere in the Seattle area, you know, what? why do you think we have so much homelessness in the area? What I have heard many people say, and it's what I believe to be true um, before you and I started connecting on this topic, was that Seattle had a bunch of um, new businesses and attracted a whole bunch of people. The population went up. Therefore, for natural forces of supply and demand, there were not enough homes for the people coming in. So they start competing with each other. The prices go up. And then you end up with people being priced out. And they have to sort of move farther and farther away from the city and adopt longer commutes in and out of the city because that's where they could find, you know, a home that they could afford type of thing. And so that all sounds very natural, in which case you can't point a finger or you don't think there's anyone who's doing anything malicious or wrong. And so you just shrug your shoulders, feel sad, and hope that eventually we build a bunch of new homes and the problem goes away. Like that is what I've heard everyone say for the last number of years. Yes, I've heard the exact same theory. And to test that theory, I decided to run a test analysis on the state of Washington mm-hmm. to determine if AI was really impacting the market or if it really was just a, a matter of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And what my study concluded was that the rental rates in the, in the first group, which is the large cities where AI is used, mm-hmm. those rental rates went up 90% higher than in the group that is not influenced or impacted by the AI technology. study went on to show there were no other real economic factors that influenced the prices. But to clarify, because you and I talked about this before, you, I think, told me that in those um, the four areas where the pricing did not go up, you actually still have um, like full saturation. You don't have like a bunch of empty houses sitting around which would you know, the, the demand is high. Correct. The, the demand is actually higher in the smaller communities. Okay. Uh, w- what I found was if this was a normal economy, mm-hmm. the prices should have gone up higher in the smaller communities of, of Yakima, Walla Walla, and, and Pasco. Because okay. their vacancy is 1% to 3%. Mm-hmm. Versus the, vacancy, the largest yeah. cities still had 4.5% vacancy. Right. The only difference was whether AI was being employed. And in the AI environments, you have much higher rates than in the non-AI environments. That is correct. In fact, for those who would like to see the study, that study is actually on my website if someone wants to go in and read the study. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, folks, you can go to www.jamesmartinnelson.com. And that's the website. You'll also find that in the bio on our website at voiceofashon.org and also my personal website, marchtwisdale.com. So if you didn't catch it right now and you're driving down the road, please don't grab a pen and try to scratch it out while you're driving. Um, Just go to the website, marchtwisdale.com, and you can find it there. Okay. You've done a lot of research into this. This isn't just a frivolous assumption. And I believe you have, is it three chapters in the book that are devoted specifically to the artificial intelligence issue? That's correct. That's correct. 
And, and just to point out, originally my book started out as four separate economic studies covering the, all the aspects of the housing market. And, and once I found that AI and, and other issues were causing the, the skyrocketing rental rates and homelessness, uh, I, I elected to summarize my findings in the book, uh, Stealing Home. I think people maybe just aren't aware that property managers and landlords who 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, were sort of in competition with each other in a free market. I mean, I remember at the age of 18 looking for my second apartment, you know, with my boyfriend, Joe, and we would go around and go to all these different apartment complexes. And we knew they were all in competition with each other for our renter dollar. And so we knew that the price was going to be as low as they could make it because they wanted to fill their vacancies. But right now, instead of property managers and landlords competing against one another, it sounds like you said they are actually using the same platform. In our area, it's called RealPage, and that this platform allows them to all share the same information that their artificial intelligence program has cultivated. Think of Facebook. You think they have information about you. <laughs> Apparently, this puts them to shame. And that yeah. instead of competing with each other, they share private information on tenants, and they use the same decision-making algorithms, collect and correlate data on current rent rolls using private and personal applications of millions of tenants in America, and that through this platform, they are able to actively control the rental market and raise the rates for their profit, hurting all the rest of us. That's correct. And I, and I discuss this in great detail in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, if for no other reason, uh, everyone owes it to themselves to understand what's happened to our housing markets and what is causing uh, and how they are implementing the AI technology to take mm-hmm. advantage of everyone. So you say in the book that um, the numbers you give is that this platform is being used by 12,200, over 12,200 property managers. And and someone might go, oh, well, that's a lot of property managers. It sounds like, you know, they're probably competing with each other. But that 12,000 number of property managers actually control over 18 million rental units in the country. That's correct. And, and in, my, in my research, I found one legal representative of one of the larger property managers, and he pointed out just how effective the AI technology has been in driving profits. And in his statement, he mentioned that the year before they started using the AI, mm-hmm. they had an operating loss of about $2.5 million. And after they started using the artificial intelligence technology, mm-hmm. they averaged sixteen and a half million profit. That's how the AI changed their operations. In how many years? In, in just a couple of years. That was like a twenty million dollar shift. Yes, that is what's causing our skyrocketing rental rates. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're paying fifteen hundred dollars one year, and five years later, we're paying twenty five hundred for the same apartment, no mm-hmm. other benefits. Right, and that apartment has only gotten older. (laughs) You know, the plumbing is older, the roof is older, so it's, you know, depreciation should be coming into mind instead of appreciation. Exactly. In fact, one of the studies that I found that was completed by RealPage, 
and it had taken place in the state of New York, in the city of New York City. You know, there was a shortage of housing, that they were saying. Mm-hmm. They were going to raise rates just 5 to 10%. And so what RealPage told the property manager is, you've got to take people out of this whole process. And they replaced it with the AI. And the AI had no problem with raising rents by over 20%. Mm. So the human element in this is gone. And it's basically priced in a black box by the algorithm. And the algorithm prices all these 18 million properties at the same time with all of the same information. And it's data that normally would not be shared between competitors. And basically what they have found is they can make far more money by working together. Right. Of course, that's the whole point of a cartel. Yes. A lot of us who are in our 40s and 50s, uh, we probably, or 60s, we probably look back at, you know, our first apartment I think a lot of us would actually remember the the person who was in charge of that that apartment, you know? I mean, like, I remember Mm -hmm. going to all these different apartment complexes, and every apartment complex had one unit that a property manager lived in, you know? Mm -hmm. And they were usually, like, a senior citizen retired, you know? It was a good job for a retiree type of thing. And I would imagine right now that probably they don't really need that human touch because you said one result of this program was also harsh competition between the property managers and consolidation as some of them don't grab onto the artificial intelligence program. They get sort of priced out and then the ones that are using it swoop in and grab them up. So we really do have a monopolization uh, process going on here. Correct. Which is really bad for renters. It is. And if you think that is bad, it only gets scarier Mm -hmm. because you see it's the AI algorithm that sets the rate, but it's the property manager's job to lock the tenants in those high-rate long-term contracts Mm -hmm. by using a program they call aggressive leasing tactics. Yes, we need to talk about that next for sure. And I think also I want to mention you have, is it a, it's in the book and also on the website, I believe, the 10 Steps to Homelessness. Is that? Yes. Okay. So we're going to talk about this now, guys, and then we're going to be out of time. I just want to make sure everyone knows you can go to www.jamesmartinnelson.com. You can also go to my website, marchtwisdale.com, and you can access this information. The book is available right now for people who want to check it out. You can find information about how to access the book at the website. And on your website, you have a lot of information, including the 10 Steps to Homelessness, so people can educate themselves just right there on the website, correct? That is correct. That is correct. And I actually have several blogs out there right now dealing with COVID and rent uh, and even discussing, you know, will these low-interest loans work? I have history on that. that You you can't be in an industry like I was, you know, for 40 years and not having experienced this before. Right. Well, so let's let's go ahead and dive into the aggressive rental tactics. I actually didn't really want to tie you down to talking too much about the exact moment in time because even, you know, my mortgage broker uh, is it's like they don't even know. The information I'm getting from them is different from what's coming direct from the federal government. So I feel like it's a hard moment to try to make a firm statement with everything shifting under our feet. But you are going to have ongoing blog posts that are tracking the current moment where people can go and sort of get updates and insights 
as things shift. Is that correct? That is correct. Absolutely. Good. So you're an ongoing positive resource for people. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, I found four processes that the property managers use now. Aggressive leasing tactics. Yes, good. Okay, and you personally experienced them, which I find fascinating. So for folks out there who think, oh, this is good for someone in their 20s, but I already know what's going on. No, you have not been there, done that. You have been in the past. Things are different now. So, um, James, go ahead and launch off into that topic real quick. Yeah, there is definitely a new landlord in town, and he has come with a lot of new weapons. Mm -hmm. You see, as I mentioned, once the... AI sets the rate, the manager locks you in. I'll give an example of my own. Right. So I wanted to write this book, and I needed to take a sabbatical. But I needed to get away. I was living in Southern California, very active in the real estate markets. And so I needed to get away. And, mm-hmm. and I certainly loved the, the cooler climate up here. But our intent was to move up here, spend a year renting, and then in the meantime, looking for a community we wanted to to live in and then buy a home. Right. When our lease was coming close to maturing after a year, the markets were still little, not not quite where we wanted them to be. So I made up a point to go and talk to the property manager and let her know that we would really like to move our contract from a 12-month to a month-to-month. And of course, she was like, sure, no problem. So when the time came to negotiate our lease, when we sat down, the first thing she handed us was a rental pricing sheet. And when I looked at that, I was shocked. To go to a month-to-month contract, they were going to double our rent mm-hmm. from 2300 a month to $4,600 a month. And, of course, we complained. And then she was quick to point out that since we didn't give that 20-day notice, we owed $4,600. And since we didn't give that 20-day notice, we owed the second month rent of $4,600. And, of course, we were objecting. It's like, you know, we thought we were just going to be, you know, we were good tenants. We were just going to go month to month. Mm -hmm. And Um, you had talked to her a couple of months in advance, correct? You know, because the the, the gym was in the clubhouse and I used the gym quite regularly. Mm -hmm. And so we would talk quite often. Right. It shocked me. It, It really did. But then the underlying threat started coming. Mm-hmm. She'd been trained to do this. Right. You know, she, you mentioned that she could mess up our credit. You can make it difficult to get future housing. And, of course, we finally consented to taking the 12-month contract. And, of course, it was 5% above the market rates, which is what I later learned that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where the aggressive leasing came in. Not only was I stuck in a 12-month contract, but they put in an early termination fee of Mm $5,000. And that wasn't all. Even if we brought in another tenant equally qualified Mm -hmm. to take over our lease, we had to pay that early termination of $5,000. Plus, we had to pay another fee of over $2,000 just to process the paperwork. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I learned that they are doing. They're putting in massive fees to right. keep you locked in to these high rates on 12 or longer month contracts that make it almost impossible to get out of. So they now, know where they they know where they want you and then they make it economically disastrous to go into any other direction. 
that's like just sort of being a jerk when you make a contract. And But the fact that you went in and spoke with this person in advance and you didn't realize because you had a relationship with this person, you felt like, you know, it was a friendship in a way that they would be honest and upfront yeah. with you, that, that because of that, you didn't supply them with like a request from them, a handwritten, you know, answer. She had very nicely right. told you everything was fine. So in, in our society, if a person tells you verbally that everything is fine, no problem, and then you ask them to also give you a written document, a lot of us actually, sociology points out how uncomfortable that is because what you're doing is accusing the person of basically being dishonest. And so people don't right. want to do that. So so that would be, as you say, the training. It's sort of like how they train young, beautiful, attractive college students to go out and become pharmaceutical reps. And they know nothing about the world of medicine, but they get trained very, very well in how to manipulate the doctors in the doctor's office in order to generate profit for the pharmaceutical industry. There are basically two types of tenants. Mm -hmm. There's a type of tenants that can pay the high rents and pay the high fees, but about half of the country, the tenants are struggling to make that ever-increasing rent payment. Right. And this is where it gets really difficult. What I found is that property managers are using this program to really hurt people who are struggling to make these payments. Mm -hmm. What they do is these tenants who struggle, in many cases, can't pay all the rent up front. So they try to work a reasonable approach. And this, like you said, when we were younger, this was done all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. But what happens is when these people go in and make a partial payment, the, the, they, they accept it. And then they'll bring in the rest of the payment as the month goes on. Mm -hmm. The problem is the property managers are charging massive fees. Right. And even the next month, if the tenant has all the money for their rent, they take it in and, and pay the rent, but what the property manager is doing is taking that current, the payment they made, and placing it on the fees from last month, mm -hmm. leaving the tenant short for this month, right. charging more fees. They call that fee stacking. Okay, is fee the stacking. Term, which is illegal. It's an illegal thing where you're paying fees on top of fees. So if it's illegal, how is it happening? We talked about the CFPB. Right. They're, they're basically non-functioning. Right. So the property managers know they have unfettered access to profits. Okay. And so what they're doing with these tenants is they're starting the process of eviction. And when they do that, that $7,000 fee I, ta I told you about, right. they can then technically charge that fee to the tenant, just burying the tenant in fees. Right, and, right, right. And starting the, the process okay. of eviction. Yeah, I mean, the fees in a way is sort of like something you just sort of pull out of your back pocket. I mean, obviously, it, if like you mentioned earlier that if you had found someone who wanted to take on your lease, that not only would you still have to pay this $5,000 early termination fee, even though you had not caused any impact to them because you were replacing yourself with another person. But in addition to that, then you also were going to be charged this uh, $2,000 fee for having the paperwork being done for that new tenant. And I'm thinking it just can't actually take up $2,000 worth of any human's time <laughs> to run some paperwork, run a credit report, you know? I mean, so they have the capacity right now to 
use fees as a way to herd people. That's what's going on. You, it's like you're whipping them. I'm going to whip on the right, whip on the left. Therefore, you're just going to move forward because if you move to the right or the left, the lash is going to hit you on the back. So people just go in the direction where the least amount of pain exists. Yes. Now, these tenants that struggle, yes. in order to try to protect their family, they try to move to a, a, a place that charges lesser rent. Right. The problem is this shared operating platform that the mm-hmm. property managers use, Right. it's used to keep that from happening. The property managers have an agreement amongst themselves. In fact, in my book, I quote at least three and a fourth on my website. Mm-hmm. And what it is, when the, prop, when, when the tenant tries to move to another community, the platform notifies all 12,000 users that this tenant owes money at this property. Mm-hmm. And they will not accept an application from this tenant until all the fees and what the property manager deems is owed to them mm-hmm. is paid in full. And this program, the, the aggressive leasing tactics, is what my study found to be the leading cause of homelessness in this country. They are, they are actually erecting barriers to housing. And, and when they can't pay those fees and when they can't pay all those costs, they either have to go move in back with family or friends or homeless shelters or the streets. But even if they do that, the fees are still, you know, imagine you, you're, you've got a one-year lease. you got a good job. You can pay everything. Everything's fine. But you don't have like, you know, 12 months worth of um, rent just sitting in your savings account. And you right. lose your job for whatever reason. You're a great person, the the company collapses, whatever. And three months later, you're at month eight of being in your lease. And on month five, you lost your job. And you're like, hey, you know what? I can't afford this. And I've already missed a couple of months. I've been late. So now I've got fees accruing. So I really need to go somewhere else. They're like, sure, you can go somewhere else. And you're going to owe us $5,000 for getting out of your lease early, which obviously is really hard to handle when you don't have any income. And so let's say you have to do that. If you stay, you're going deep. And so then you go and you live with your mom. But the next time you go to look for an apartment, they're still chasing you for that 5000 they pulled out of their back pocket and said that you owed them because you yeah. moved out. And so now when you try to go somewhere else, you can't. And they also, I believe, chase you down. Like they'll actually go after you in small claims court, things like that. Yes. In fact, if, if, you, if you have a chance to get to my website, mm-hmm. I, I break this down. And, and in my research, I, I found, uh, it's, I call it predatory leasing and 10 steps to homelessness. Right. I found an actual 10 step process that turns a, a struggling renter mm-hmm. who's struggling but really trying to make that rent mm-hmm. just one hospital bill away. You don't even have to be a struggling renter. You can be a comfortable renter and then you lose your job. You, like you say, a hospital bill. So that's what I really want people to understand is that everyone who feels like they're economically comfortable or safe right now everyone who feels like they're not possibly going to ever be homeless. I really want everyone to understand that they're also vulnerable. Absolutely. The way they run these contracts now, it's very tough to get out of them. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I, I once again urge people to look at my website 
because I, I cover these topics in detail on how to protect themselves right. and, and how to fight these issues. Right. And you have, um, in your book, you talk about it in the website, obviously, also. Right now, there are um, things that we can advocate for, that we can encourage our elected representatives to fight for. There are the same things that happened under FDR's New Deal. Those same type of decisions can be made right now and can correct this situation. It's just a matter of um, the will of the people. That's correct. In fact, this is the main reason I wrote this book, is to help people understand what they are facing and how to prepare themselves to fight against it. And the entire book was written to understand what has happened to our housing markets and what we need to do to take those markets back Mm -hmm. from the profiteers. There you go. James Martin Nelson. I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you, March, for inviting me here to share the work that I've completed on our housing markets. Yes, Stealing Home, How Artificial Intelligence is Hijacking the American Dream. JamesMartinNelson.com is the website to go to, folks. And I would like to thank you all for listening to Voice of Vashon at 101.9 FM KVSH.